people are always curious about supplements, and I think um, how they affect the training adaptations is something I've continued looking into, actually, um, um, much more deeply over the past month or two. And so I think there's, there's some interesting things there we could talk about. the one more mile podcast today is monday december 31st the last day of 2018 and i am your host chris harnish and joining me today is not my inimitable co-host uh hennock gets uh hennock probably will be joining us in a little bit but i do have a special guest today uh registered dietitian jeff rothschild is coming back on the show and uh, I wanted to bring Jeff on to talk about uh, a variety of nutrition kind of topics, uh, thoughts I've had, uh, and really being the time of the year, the holiday, uh, things that maybe you guys can think about uh, as you're heading into the off season and then preparing for your next season. How you doing, Jeff? I'm doing good, thanks. Happy to be back on. Cool. Well, it's good to have you on. Um, we uh, have been conversing quite a bit over the past year, but only over email. Uh, and there's always stuff going on in the realm of sports nutrition. Can you kind of tell us what you've been up to and, and uh, you know, maybe kind of like the, the coolest thing that you've done maybe in the last month? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, coolest thing. I don't know if, if I do anything that's that cool, but I, I guess what I've been up to is probably not that different from the last time we talked. And I spend most of my time, uh, like I said, I'm a registered dietitian. I specialize in sports and endurance sports, so I work with people of all levels, um, but primarily relating to endurance sports, swimmers, triathletes, cyclists, uh, people uh, that compete at the Olympics, are trying to get to the Olympics, that are trying to complete their first 5K or first 70.3, so really uh, the, the range of, of, of performance levels. But I actually enjoy that because it's really, for me as a dietitian and working with people, it's about helping them use the best science, the best tools, the best experience that, that, that I can uh, to help them really get the most out of their body and out of their, out of their performance you know, in, in, and in the most effective and efficient and enjoyable way possible. So it's really what I spend most of my time doing. And in addition, though, um, I do stay involved in research. We've worked on uh, a paper together. I've uh, got a couple other things going on. And uh, I guess um, the maybe the, the cooler, the more enjoyable things I've been working on are uh, doing a study in triathletes looking at the effects of swimming on subsequent cycling performance. So many people might do FTP tests or lactate threshold tests or VO2 max tests, um, and they might do that when they're rested. But I'm sure anyone who's done triathlon has, knows that you don't ride the same after a swim as you do just you know fresh out of bed or fresh after breakfast. So trying to look in more in depth at what those differences are, um, you know, how much of a decline in, in lactate threshold or VO2 max or, or these different things, um, how much of a decline shows up after you've been swimming for 30 to 40 minutes. Very cool. I, I actually just gave a uh, talk for the National Strength and Conditioning Association on, on Xterra Triathlon. And uh, I talked a little bit about this because there's not, there's not a lot of research um, 
on that swim the bike transition. There mm-hmm. is a good bit uh, there that you know from from bike to run, uh, and and what we generally see is that h- how you actually do the bike uh, can impact the run. But I know uh, only one study that on uh, swim to 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 bike transition that that kind of gets at the heart of this and i think there are a few studies out there but the one study that i i do recall seeing is that uh if you swim a positive split in the swim meaning you you start very fast and then you tend to slow down in the in in the swim that tends to bode better for the bike um, and, and that sounds cool or that sounds interesting, but I don't know if that's very really useful because, it, you know, you know, in a race situation, it's very difficult. I mean, yes, you want to try to start, start fast and, and at least try to get into a pack because you, you do get that drafting effect. But, um, but a lot of times I, I think it's, it's, it's maybe more important to actually get at the heart of, you know, what's going on there. And certainly, you know, perceptually, I feel horrible on the bike when, when I get out of the swim. Mm. Uh, you know, and I often wonder if part of that is just the fact that, you know, you're swimming, uh, you're, you're essentially getting no warm-up during the bike because you're, you're, you're spending probably 20 or 30 minutes in the water. The water might be cool. Most of the blood in your body is in your upper torso at that point. Uh, and then you're trying to transition to the bike. So it, it will be interesting to see how how your data plays out as well as uh you know maybe trying to get at the heart of some of the mechanisms there um mm-hmm. and and really strategies yeah absolutely and and you're right there is much more available research on that that second transition um i i, I suppose it's because it's thought of as I, you know i suppose more important um but nonetheless there, there's a, there was a, a few interesting things that i did find looking in the old research that might be you know, worth discussing briefly. And, and one is, and this is one I thought you were going to mention, actually looking at um, the different swimming intensities. So um, cycling efficiency was higher after a lower intensity swim than it was after a maxima, maximal intensity swim, which is probably not too surprising, but that actually translates into faster cycling and faster overall triathlon performance. Now, if we're talking about draft legal triathlon, the swim, you know, it, it really is a different picture because the swim leg a number I found was pretty interesting. The winner in 90% of elite male and 70% of elite female races exited the water in the first pack. So if we're talking about draft legal, I think it's pretty darn important to to get in that first pack. And it's probably less important during long course races. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, there's a couple of things I think at play and, and I'll know more in the next month or two as we really finalize this data. But what I'm doing is seeing lactate levels at the end of the swim. And there's definitely some relationship or there, there seems to be, um, between which, which shouldn't be surprising, the higher lactate levels and, and, uh, the bigger decline in performance. And there might also be some relationship between percent body weight loss. So people, you know, you don't think about sweating when you're swimming, but you, you can indeed lose body weight. And, um, you know, the people that lose more, now that's tough to measure, but it's, it's most likely underestimated. I, what I'm trying to do is, have people dry off as best they can. So we want to minimize the transition time between the swim and bike. So trying to keep it, you know, around five minutes or, or so, but of course you want to be diligent enough to dry off. So what, what's happening is if anything, I'm probably underestimating weight loss because 
there's, you know, even though someone has got a swim cap and they dry their hair, if, you know, there's water in your hair or just on your skin. So anyway, I'm seeing, you know, a, a reasonable amount of body weight loss. So people are going into this, to the cycling portion, dehydrated to some degree. And then we already know that that has effects on heart rate, uh, on lactate threshold. So, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Hey folks, I'm going to take a quick pause here. We actually uh, have Henock dialing in right now and we are going to pick up with him as he comes on the show. Hey Henock, how you doing? Good, good. All right, so uh, uh so Jeff, you you were talking about your research now and and um you're looking more at kind of the physiology and so one of the things that I've seen with the research with with uh uh, swim to bike in particular is that they look at kind of just the runtime. So it is curious, uh, or I would be curious to see really kind of the, the, you know, you know, the role that lactate plays and, and, uh, what that relationship is. Cause I often feel a lot of these studies that are looking at the transition between, uh, you know, swim to, to, to bike and bike to run uh, they they often kind of leave out the physiology side of things, uh, you know, especially you know VO two and substrate use. So it makes for an interesting kind of like, oh yeah, okay, that has an impact. But what are the mechanisms? So so it would be neat to see if you can start to parse those out because I'm I'm not really sure. Like one of the things that I I definitely find is that um, you know I, it it takes like a good ten or fifteen minutes to really kind of get going on the bike, and and I know I, I as I mentioned it, it it it's almost like you're losing your entire warm up time, um, and and so I'm wondering how much of kind of the swim to bike is is maybe one set of mechanisms uh versus that 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 uh bike to run which is more of maybe a uh you know a muscle activation or muscle use or motor unit recruitment or or, or those types of things yeah that's a good question and it's definitely you know this this study is is just a, a small look into all the different things i mean yeah there's no there's no run portion there's no performance testing on the bike or the run you know so there's definitely uh limitations as far as what we're looking at but um i was yeah you know just really try to zero in on a few things and seeing i mean it, it would seem of course, we, we want to confirm this in the future, but it would seem like if your lactate threshold was lower and you know your, your efficiency was lower, all these things, then, then your performance is going to suffer. Um, but of course, even just having a pool swim versus an open water swim, there's going to be a whole lot of different variables. So, you know, it, it's it's a tough. I think one of the reasons we don't see a lot of research in it is just it's really hard to study. You know, there's just so much. Um, it's just it's just there's a lot a lot of moving parts. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And and. Uh... I, I'm curious how how are you set up? So so I I presume you're using a pool, but 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 how is the labs setting set up? How much time is there in between them going from from the swim to the bike? Do they have to change? I I mean, are you trying to make it as close yeah. to kind of a yeah, simulation? Yeah, I've, I've kind of kept it as like let's move, let's not dawdle, but we don't have to frantically run. Um, the pool is in the same building. It's just downstairs. So they come out of the pool. I take a lactate reading immediately and um, get their heart rate off, um, things like that. And then they'll they'll change out. And I'll say, you know, dry off promptly, but you know, take your time so that you're as dry as possible. 
uh, change into cycling gear. So then we can go upstairs, weigh you, and then jump on the bike and start warming up the, you know, on the bike. Now, the other difference is because uh, I'm starting with a lactate test, you know, we're starting, it's, it's different because we're going to start at a, a much lower intensity than you would ride at, right? So because I, I wanted to do a graded exercise test, the lact, you know, lactate test, um, it's not, you, in a race, you're going to go out at, let's say, roughly your perceived effort lactate threshold, yeah. you know, it's not higher and then try to bring your heart rate down as you start riding. So, um, you know, there, there's differences, but the, the, the best way I can facilitate it is, yeah, keeping about five minutes, maybe stretching it to 10 in tra- of transition, uh, because of the weighing, I, cause I, I do really want to see the body weight change before and after, and then getting on the bike and, and, um, you know, getting basically the, the trainer warmed up again, it takes five minutes at like a hundred Watts and then, you know, just checking the calibration and those kind of little things that I don't really, uh, have a necessarily work around. So it's a limitation, but I, it still, um, uh, seemed to be seeing an effect of the swimming. Yeah. And I imagine for you, recruitment is a real problem because you, you've got to try to find a certain level of well, athlete and then yeah, you've got to convince them to do the testing. Yeah, that the, almost the hardest thing is convincing them to take the day off before the test, and then they were doing a test twice within ten ten days, and then I need them, but not two days in a row, and then I need them to take the day off beforehand. So it usually works out to the like the same day, one week apart, and then um, you know taking that day off before, and so that's kind of been a bit of the inconvenience. But I've I've kept this. I wanted this to be elite age groupers, um, yeah. just because it's a population I you know generally have access to and work with. Um, so to be in, included and in, in so far, um, I, I think we'll end up with about 15, 14 or 15, depending on scheduling. I want to get it, uh, just, you know, uh, if we can get everyone in that that's interested, it'd be about 15 people that have either qualified for Kona or 70.3 world championships or oh, okay. gone sub, sub 10, 30 full or, or sub five half Ironman. Um, so, so one quick question in, and I was just thinking about this because you had mentioned the weight loss during the swim. Um, are you measuring urine output? No, I'm just not having them pee between, you know, between that time. It's only about a half hour, 35 minutes or so. of. Hello? Before they, they do it. Oh, you still there? Yep. Um, yeah, so I'll have them pee beforehand and not drink anything, you know weigh them, not drink anything, go down and swim, come back and weigh them. And then they can pee and maybe someone's peeing in the pool. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, well, if you're Michael Phelps, you're peeing in the pool. <laughs> we already know that. Um, but, uh, and, and in some ways, sorry, but you know, differentiating sweat loss from urine loss, um, while it's important for sweat rate per se, I mean, I, I kind of think of it as still body weight. It's still body water loss, right? So yeah, you're, it's water that's out of your your plat out of your system, out of your circulation. So whether that comes via pee or via sweat, I mean, I'm not sure how big of an actually difference that really makes. Yeah, and that's a good point. And and I don't I, I don't know the specific reasons for for why it is, but but clearly when you get in the water you have to urinate more and, and I know it's it's hard enough for me to get through, say, like a forty five minute workout. Yeah, you know, let alone try to actually warm up for a race, and then and then I have to pee like 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 five six times. Um, but your kidneys are filtering more blood, and when they filter more blood, they're going to produce more urine, and that urine is going to end up in your bladder. So I I think from your point of view that 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 whole idea is 
you know, it's body water loss versus body water loss. It doesn't really matter mm-hmm. because normally if you get on the bike um, and you're, you know, you're, you're riding pretty hard or you're running, I mean, your kidneys, more, you, know, you know, they're more or less shut down. Uh, you know, because you got a reduction in blood flow to them, and and that's one of the reasons why when you're when you're exercising really hard or for a long period of time, you don't have to pee. I mean, it's right, just and the, then when you stop, you have to totally pee so bad. Yeah. Yeah. So so uh, that that's uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be interesting. I think it's 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 going to be one of those studies that probably raises more questions than it answers. Um, but again, nobody's really looking at that piece of the puzzle. I've done some, some individual work on myself with bike to run transition. And I've seen some interesting things with that. Um, but it, it's in a lot of ways, just easier for me to do that, you know, cause it's my, myself, I can set my trainer up right next to the treadmill. Yeah. I can get off the trainer and just like get on the treadmill, but it's putting that in a research study is, is more daunting than yeah. most people think. Uh, well, cool. Um, so, so uh, with with what's happening in the sports nutrition world, and and one of the things that 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 you had mentioned is that we worked on a paper recently, uh, and and uh, I was very sad to see a lot of the stuff that I had put a lot of time into got cut, and your stuff didn't. Um, but your stuff, yeah, yeah, that's publishing. But uh, but but your stuff was really interesting because. Um, we we were looking at kind of like this this idea of endurance training and adaptation and and how supplements play a role. So so what were some of the things that 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 you wrote about in that paper and 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 kind of the findings that we kind of came up with as a conclusion? Yeah, well, and just a, a brief word on that. I mean, I think just for if people are curious, and I've, I've often wondered sometimes you re, you read a paper, review paper especially, and you wonder why they just gloss over things so quickly. And it's word count limits. I mean, our, that paper could have or should have been. 10 or 15,000 words, uh, whereas it was what, 3000 or, you know, whatever it is. So that's oh, I know. just an, yeah. an aside. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, training like food, nutrition, um, food and supplements can either positively or negatively impact the adaptations to training. And I think that's becoming more, um, there's more awareness around that, definitely in the science that's been for the past 20 years. But as far as the general public, I think that message is starting to get uh, relayed a little bit more. And so, um, or maybe that's just in my niche because I'm so aware of this stuff, you know, and tuned into it. But yeah, um, I think a good way, and we, we may have talked about this in our, our last time we talked uh, on the podcast, but basically there's some signal that happens in better muscle. And Part of that signal, for example, is is a glycogen depletion. So as our gas tank depletes, not only is is the glycogen acting as an energy source, but it also acts as a signal. So when that glycogen is depleted or depleting, um, that's sending a a different signal than if we're exercising and and the gas tank is never depleting. So with that basic concept in mind, we can go into workouts with a lower gas tank or a higher gas tank, and it's going to affect both our performance and our adaptations to that workout. Interesting. I think from that perspective, this is kind of where I get into, I get a lot of people that ask me questions about, you know, what they should do for their training, or they might tell me, oh, you know, I just do all my workouts fasted because I hear that that's, you know, that's better. Uh, but really what, what you're saying, and I, and I think what the research shows is that it's really trying to target that the you know that 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 particular energy system or perhaps that adaptation 
and, and this is what I try to really hammer home to students because we talk about prescribing exercise just as a you know, more basic thing than, than, than a lot of us coaches use. And I say, look, at, you have to have a goal, okay? The person's got to have a goal. You, you know, whatever it is, I want to compete in here. I want to complete this time. But within that goal, you're going to break up your training and, and periodize it. Um, and then within a periodized kind of like, like a smaller section of that training, you're going to do various training sessions and you're going to have a training session and that training session should have an objective. Okay. A training objective. What do you want to get out of that training? And so if all you ever do is train fasted, um, but let's say you're going out on a, on a, you know, an interval run, but it's, it's longer and you're fasted. It's like, what, what do you want to get out of it? Well, I want to try to get maximum performance out of that run. Cause I, I really want to work on my speed. Okay. Well don't do a fasted. And so it's trying to balance those signals. So, so what, what are some, I guess some, some ideas from you that would kind of optimize that, that, that ability to, you know, okay, I want this outcome. Um, you know, so I've got to do, you know, X, Y, Z. So, so I guess what I'm saying is what, what are some common outcomes that we might want to train for? Yeah. Um, I think the, the good way to think about it is what did I, what did I just do as far as my workouts go and what, and what do I have next? So that determines like the level of our gas tank, let's say. So, so really you need a, a muscle biopsy to determine your glycogen levels or our gas tank levels. But I think people generally you know, if, if someone is training regularly, you, you kind of have a sense of when you're really topped up and when you're fairly depleted. Um, and so it's this constant moving gas tank and you think, okay, how, how depleted am I? Did I just do an easy 20 minute jog or did I just do a, a five hour bike ride that was, you know, climbing and, and, and hard and intervals and all these things. So that will determine kind of where your tank is at. And then what do I have coming up? So if I have, you know, a 20 minute jog the next day, or if I have a hard bike ride, another, you know, a, a four hour bike ride, whatever you're thinking, okay, where do I want my gas tank to be? If it's going to be an easy workout or a low intensity workout, um, it doesn't need to be that high and maybe it should be on the lower side. And if it's going to be a high intensity workout or a, a very long workout, then you probably want to make sure there's enough gas in the tank. So that dictates, should your meals be, let's say high, medium or low in carbohydrate. And that's a good way to think about it. If you just think, you know, what did I just do? How depleted am I? So where, kind of where am I at? And then what do I need to be before the next workout? Uh, I had this conversation just this morning with a client. Um, you know, let's say, for example, you did a, a swim workout this afternoon that was kind of medium. And then tomorrow you just have like a, a zone two bike ride. Well, some people might think, okay, I'm just going to do a fasted workout, um, which is fine. But the, the nuance with fasted workouts is that your muscle glycogen, that, that doesn't deplete overnight. So if you've, let's say, had your swim this afternoon and then you go and eat like a super high-carb recovery shake and then another high-carb meal at dinner or whatever it is and your, your gas tank is kind of, let's say, more or less repleted, you go to sleep and you wake up, that, that mu the muscle glycogen is in exactly the same place as where you went to sleep. Now, the liver glycogen does get depleted overnight. Uh, it's kind of a, I guess, a, a different part of this story. But for our muscles, if if we go to sleep with a full tank or whatever, wherever the tank is, it's going to be there in the morning. So some people I think that are doing faster workouts are actually missing some of the benefit to what a, a low carbohydrate workout actually is doing, um, because again, their glycogen is already kind of topped up when they go to sleep. Now, 
another option, well, so two options there actually. One is to be more conscious of, even though it's the rest of the day and I've just had an easy swim, I don't, so, uh, and I want to keep a low carbohydrate workout for the next one. That means I got to stay low carb for those next two or three meals or whatever it may be. Alternatively, if you're exercising twice in a day, say you're doing a morning and an afternoon workout, what you can do is keep, you know, you, let's say the morning is a depleting workout, then you don't recover with a whole lot of carbohydrates. You keep your carbohydrates low in between those workouts. You know your gas tank is still going to be low going into that second workout, and that gives you an opportunity to train with that low work, uh, that, that low gas tank. Um, yeah, so putting it together, where, where if, if that second workout is a really high quality and important workout, then you would want to replete. Maybe you have your oatmeal or you have some rice at lunch or whatever it may be. You want to replete that carb. So as long as, again, just kind of always thinking, what did I just do? which dictates how many carbs I need to put back in the tank, and what do I have coming up next? So from the train high, train low, sleep high, sleep low concept then, uh, there, there are a couple ways to put this together. I'll tell you two things that I do. I've done the sleep low, okay? I've done sleep low a lot, um, and I feel awful. I, I usually mm. sleep awful. And yep. you mean When you say sleep low, you just mean going to bed hungry? Is that kind of what you mean? Go, going to bed uh, low carb. So, so basically... Okay. Uh, what you yeah, do? Explain. Is, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say you you exhaust your glycogen, or or you 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 significantly tap into your glycogen. Uh, you know, so you might do your intervals in the evening, or you know, maybe you did a, a, a four or five hour ride. It doesn't matter. You're just really just trying to bring yourself low from a glycogen okay. standpoint, and then you eat a meal. Uh, but but you're you you're going low carb like really low carb or or almost no carb, uh, and then you go high protein. So you have to have enough protein in the evening. You 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 go to bed, and then the typical protocol is you get up in the morning and you do another workout, but it's an easy workout, and you're, okay, you're okay, really really low in the um, fasted state, and you yeah, do that workout. Yeah, yeah and and uh, you know, and I generally feel like shit. Um, you know, I, I sleep terrible and then I wake up and I feel awful <laughs> and then the rest of the day I'm starving. So is that, <laughs> I, Sounds I'm, fantastic. yeah, I mean, it, 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 it it's really hard. And yeah, you know, I've looked at, I, I've looked at the sleep below research a lot just because it's interesting, but it, it's daunting. Um, and you have to be very, very careful, uh, at least in my opinion, because it's super easy to get sick. Yeah, so I, I agree. Yeah, completely. Uh, the the couple things I think there's, and James Morton has kind of started to, to discuss this. There, there's a, a glycogen threshold. So if you go to sleep with your glycogen too low, that's probably not a good thing, and that might kind of offset the the benefits of that. So there is kind of a sweet spot, which still remains to be determined. So it might be if you exhaust yourself really too much, that's probably not necessarily a good thing, or you can put a little bit of carbs back in. And yeah. so there is a, a sweet spot of how much to deplete. Um, but it also speaks to what I said earlier, like you could now, if you aren't in that situation and you just do a regular faster workout, you probably feel pretty much fine. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. And I, and I do a lot of fasted workouts in the morning. Uh, you know, I, I, I tend to swim more in the morning, um, fasted j- just because it's, it's easier. But, you know, I can ride and I can run and I get used to that. Where I have difficulty is if I, you know, you know, again, I'm pretty depleted and then I try to do it like I can still ride in the morning. But I tell you, man, when I'm depleted trying to do a run, I just 
like it feels like that run is just a death march. Right. So, but that speaks to the difference of low muscle glycogen versus just a regular fasted workout. Right. And so yeah. that's why I think a lot of people that are doing fasted workouts, yeah, you're, you're probably taxing your liver a little bit differently and, and you know, it's your insulin is low. So I, I get it. And I, I think there's some benefits, but probably, uh, having some protein in the morning would be just the same, but regardless, that's not a low muscle glycogen workout. Okay. And, and while it's super commonly done, you're not going to get those same benefits as a truly low muscle glycogen workout, which might be easier, uh, e- more easily attained via a, t- a twice a day uh, kind of workout where you just don't replete in between because people can maybe it's easier to get through the day with just <laughs> with, with a low glass tank. I, I mean, I guess it depends on your personal preference, but you know, I think that just that speaks volumes to the difference between a truly glycogen depleted workout and just a fasted workout. So, uh, I'll add one more comment and a question. Um, so, so I think what you're saying is that if you're somebody who is going to do kind of the sleep low and then and then fasted workout, it might be beneficial to to try to find your you know your own kind of sweet spot as far as like putting carbs back in um, at night. And really, uh, you know, I guess from from my advice to somebody would be uh, use at least your sleep pattern. Okay, uh, if you say you know you go to bed totally fat like totally fasted from the standpoint you didn't put any carbs back in and you sleep terrible, then you, you should probably eat a little bit of carb and then just try to find where you actually sleep pretty well. And I can, mm. I can do that. I can, it's usually in that three, that 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrate range where mm. I sleep good. And if I sleep good, I can get up and I can do a workout, you know, mm. and I feel like I felt like I'm rested, um, but I feel, feel depleted. And, and, and I think that that really ha- has to be the key because if you're sleeping terrible, there's no way you're going to recover properly. Um, and that's one thing that, that a lot of athletes, especially age groupers, give up, man. It's always like, I'm, I'm, I got to get more training in, so I'm going to give up my sleep. And the sleep is, is probably the last thing you want to give up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always a balance, right? Especially when you're trying to juggle things. <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. And then, and I, I think from, from that aspect, it's got to be periodized. You, you've got to, you, you've got to say, okay, well, you know, I do need to get some training time in and I am going to lose some sleep, but you know, what, like, like how can I fit the training time in and how can I fit the sleep time in? And I, I see a lot of triathletes. They, they never fit the sleep time in because they always swim in the mornings. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's why I gave up you know, kind of the swim team, kind of swim, swim mornings, because you're, you're swimming at five in the morning and you're a zombie the rest of the day. Uh, yeah. And it just compromises the rest of your workouts. Uh, I, I guess my, my last follow-up question to this then is, is it uh, detrimental to always do fasted workouts regardless if you're in that depleted state. And, and so like, let's say you're somebody, they, they almost always run in the morning and their runs are 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, and, and they hardly ever eat breakfast. Is that, is that good, bad? Is it? Yeah. Um, I think it would depend on the type of racing they're doing. So if someone was doing, let's say sprint triathlons, it probably would be fine. Mm, Well, no, I should take that back. Um, you know, the, the, the reason for my hesitation is there's got to be times where you do train your body to, to really be burning carbs well and, and be able to handle a large carb, carb intake, especially for like 70.3 distance or 
Olympic distance or Ironman distance, you know? So, uh, there's gotta be some times where you do train the, where you're really burning a lot of carbs and, and you, you indeed want that. Um, I also think there's better, um, training quality, even, even if you can handle faster workouts, like, you know, do you want to be burning fat or do you want to be burning carbs? You know, that's a, a whole nother discussion, but generally if you're doing a track workout, let's say, or even a swim workout, you, you want to be burning carbs. You're going to get more out of that workout. You're going to run faster, you're going to run more efficiently. So putting something, even if it's just a few dates or something that's not heavy in your, in your stomach, but like will increase your insulin, insulin, increase your blood sugar. And you're actually switching you to a carb burner purposely for, for the you know express purpose of that workout. Interesting. Right. Um, so I, I guess from, from that aspect, uh, would that be a little bit like the mouth rinsing principle, uh, where, uh, no. where you're j- just trying to get some sugar in there to kind of trick your body to think it's getting fuel? Yeah, that's a good question. But no, I actually think, um, it's different. So the for mouth rinsing, most people are probably aware of by now, but you can, if you just, you know, like, like people do with wine tasting, rinse some carb in your mouth and spit it out, there's going to be a little bit of a performance benefit. And that might not be a bad thing to do on some faster workouts but you actually when, when you so the, the the you know part of the reasoning that people want to do faster workouts is because you're in this you know, like fat burning mode overnight um insulin is low our basal level of insulin when insulin comes up it effectively shuts off fat burning because um, that would typically happen after a meal or a, you know mixed meal or a high carb meal so our body wants to switch to burning that sugar um, fat requires more oxygen to burn. It's, it's less efficient. So put another way, if you were, let's say doing one mile repeats and you were burning hundred percent fat or hundred percent carbohydrate, you'd be running faster with hundred percent carbohydrate. And there, there's really not a way to debate that. That's just, you know, biology or chemistry. So with that said, shifting the ratio of what you're burning, uh, from even if it's 70% fat to 70% carbs, it's going to allow you to run faster. When you can run faster, you're going to uh, engage. Well, there's there's the the nervous system, the neuromuscular uh, development from from running faster, just getting used to running faster. There's something to be said for that. There's uh, the the larger muscle fibers you're going to call into to action. Um, you, basically, you're going to be able to like, or or if it was on a bike, hit hit more higher power outputs. You know, the performance is going to be better. So there's times that you really want to train that. So so the the mouth rinsing can can go part of that way, but I think. Um, just might as well go ahead and, and swallow the carb, um, you know, completely. Now, to the point that you mentioned a few minutes ago about sacrificing sleep, really this, in a large way, this all comes back to getting more efficient time-wise. Um, if we think about a given workout, it doesn't matter if it's an interval workout or, a, or it's like a, a steady-state workout, but if you do that with a, a full tank of gas to start with, a glycogen, or a, a, a diminished glycogen tank, you're going to get a similar response uh, inside your muscle in a shorter time. So meaning you could ride for an hour and a half starting with a low gas tank or two and a half hours starting with a high gas tank to get the same net effect, meaning what kind of adaptation occurs inside your muscle. Now, it would make sense to do that in a more time-efficient manner. And then that this gets into then co- coaches have to consider this, and this, this is where really ideally you get into a, a – a, a holistic approach to, to your triathlon training, let's say. Um, but w- it would make more sense to ride for 90 minutes and, and sleep an extra hour and get the same molecular adaptations inside your muscle just by switching your, your carbon take preceding that workout uh, compared with 
waking up an hour earlier and having to ride an extra hour to get the same net benefit inside your muscle. So what would be, uh, I guess, a, a, you know, an optimal approach for some, somebody to take? Um, is, there, is there some common piece of advice that you typically give out to, you know, clients on how to approach this? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I would say, um, like we said before, think about what you just did and what you've got coming up. And if it's going to be a hard workout or a long workout, then make sure there's sufficient gas in the tank. And if it's going to be an easy workout or fairly short, and that, that uh, is a bit vague, but it can differ depending on the person, but let's just say roughly an hour, hour and 15 minutes or less, you can get by with a low gas tank, even if it's like a pool interval workout or something like that. But generally speaking, if you're going on your long three or four hour bike ride, includes climbing and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, put some gas in the tank. And that's the time to um, really see yeah, you know, that you can tolerate food during on the bike, for example, or, or and that your your stomach gets used to digesting and absorbing it and you find the right types of sports drinks or the or the right foods that you like to eat during exercise. So you're effectively practicing your race day nutrition maybe once a week, twice a week. And then the other days you could be a little bit more limited uh, with your intake. And then then it gets more nuanced if you're doing twice a day workouts or things like that. But generally speaking, you can kind of go lower for short workouts and go higher for the long long workouts. Okay. Interesting. Hanak, what are you thinking? Um, well, I mean, what are, so what, what is the benefit uh, of the whole fasting thing? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of backing up a little bit. Is, is it uh, primarily, are people doing it primarily for weight loss or just for like Ironman distance things? You, you want to be able to recruit the, uh, the fat burning because you can't store enough glycogen for you know a, a nine hour or a twelve hour event or, or what 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 is it uh, what's the, the yeah I mean a little bit of both I mean some people think of it just as a way to to lose weight but there's questionable it's questionable whether that actually increases weight loss um, there's question about yeah it can improve your fat burning but then there's there's question. Well, it's it, it seems to be able to improve your fat burning, but then there's a question of whether that actually translates to any performance improvement. So it's it's kind of unclear. And and even you know the, the best recommendations right now are to periodize this within the week, like we've been talking about. So sometimes you have high carb, sometimes you have low carb. But even then, and when we see molecular adaptations, so inside the muscle after a given workout, yeah, we see greater like things happening effectively that, that caused the ad, adaptive response that doesn't necessarily translate into performance sure. changes. Now that could be because of the performance testing, uh, that's done in a given study or because maybe it takes longer than six weeks or 12 weeks to see these changes. And this is more of a, a, a longer term thing, or maybe because the changes are small, uh, and, and hard to, to capture in a, in a testing. So it, it's really hard to know at this point. Um, it's exciting with, like over the past 20 years, molecular biology has allowed this, these discoveries to kind of see, okay, after interval workout versus a steady state workout, this is what's happening inside your muscle. And for people, and I don't expect most people to, to be aware of any of this, but it's absolutely fascinating. The amount of stuff, for lack of a better term, that happens inside your muscle during exercise, after exercise, the, 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 the molecules that talk to each other and the signaling that happens is, is really just it's unbelievable. It's a whole symphony that's happening. And so we're trying to, to set this up in the best way to get the most out of a given workout. But um, there's, there's definitely a lot of questions. And again, in a lot of cases, we see things that, that 
relate to greater adaptation. Uh, adaptations or you know adaptive responses; those don't necessarily always translate into improved performance. So that's kind of the, you know, a bit of the mystery, I suppose, right now with it. Right. So uh, we we had mentioned uh, kind of nutritional strategies, but going back to the paper that 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 we just published. What are some of the uh, the more beneficial supplements? Because I, I always get this question. It's like, well, what supplements should I take? And then I recommend them. And people are like, I'm not taking that. You know, <laughs> It's like, well, why the hell did you ask me? Uh, it's almost <laughs> like they don't, they don't want to know the supplements that work. They mm. want to take the supplement that they think works. What, what are kind of the supplements that, that, that you say – are really going to help you not only maybe eke out some performance, but actually eke out some training benefits. Yeah, that's what I find so fascinating. And there's really not a lot of research, in, and I actually hope to do some of the research on this. Um, but the, the the usual suspects of like we know these things tend to help performance fairly reliably would be sodium bicarbonate or baking soda, beta alanine, nitrate, um, caffeine, and creatine. Right. These are the ones that are always kind of on the list as, yeah, there's, there's a pretty reliable, uh, you know, not every study, but a pretty reliable chance that, that these things are going to help performance. Now, what's so interesting, and the question I started having when I was started working with people, especially with, like, let's say nitrate, so the beetroot juice. Well, if it works, so you, most studies either use it a single dose acutely or, or maybe three to six days of loading and then do a, some performance testing. And, and you know, th there's a pretty depending on the type of testing and the type of population, there, there's a, you generally see some benefit. But what if someone used that every day? Because there was a, a very high-level cyclist I was working with, and he basically stayed on it. And I thought, well, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I mean, you know, that's a reasonable question. If with In the case of the nitrate, um, well, a couple of interesting things there. One, beetroot juice in studies seems to work much better than just nitrate. So you can, you can isolate, you can give someone sodium nitrate or potassium nitrate and we, we kind of refer to the beetroot juice as, as the dietary nitrate, but there seems to be a much greater effect uh, from beetroot juice than there is from just nitrate alone. Okay, so that's really implying that there's other stuff in, in the beet, beetroot juice that are you know, having some effects, and that could be antioxidants, that could be other polyphenols. It's, it's, it's not really clear, but it does seem to be pretty clear that beetroot juice compared to nitrate salt or, you know, just the nitrate on its own, um, they, they don't have the same effects. Now, I think I, I do, from, from the available research, um, I do think there's a benefit to taking the nitrate most of the time, like basically staying on it. Um, basically, it, it, should, it, it can potentially allow increased training intensity. So if it gives you some acute performance benefit, then you can imagine that every time you do a workout, you're going to get, you know, you're going to basically be a little bit faster. And that's, effectively an increased training intensity. So that's a good thing. Um, the nitric oxide, there, there's some signaling going on that, that could potentially increase mitochondrial biogenesis, so ma making more mitochondria. Um, and also what, what actually I think is perhaps most important with nitrate is that there's some muscle fiber type remodeling that can happen. So it, that can happen. So, um, you know, we have these type one, type two fibers, um, and they, they, there's some, there's some room and they, they adapt to the type of training we're doing. And with them, with nitrate uh, or beetroot juice, it tends to be kind of shifting things towards a more oxidative or, or let's say, endurance type of phenotype. So there, there's potentially some benefit there. Um, bicarbonate and beta-alanine, those are thought of as buffers. 
Um, again, you, we can think the most obvious thing would be increased training intensity. So if you're doing intervals and you've taken baking soda beforehand, you're going to almost certainly be able to, to put out more total wattage or more total work in that workout than had you not taken it. So um, there's potential there for, you know, that whether it's through lactate signaling or, or there's different ways that can be uh, affecting things. But there's potentials for, let's say, every time you did an interval workout, if you did baking soda, there's probably you're probably going to get a better adaptation than had you not done that. And there's a few studies that support this. It's, it's very limited um, right now, but there's mechanistic reasons and, and some evidence that supports that. Um, so is it, is it, when you say better adaptation, is, is it just because you're able to train at a higher intensity or you mean you, your body kind of adapts to the training better? Well, that's a good question. Um, it, it's hard to separate that stuff out. It might be because you're just accumulating more volume, more work. Right. And in some of these studies where they match the work, you don't see these effects. So beta alanine, there's a handful of studies that prescribe power output. And even actually with bicarbonate, um, they prescribe like the intervals are done at 90% of peak power, you know, whatever the number is for a certain time period. So you're not going to see any differences in training intensity in these studies. And then right. sure enough, they result in no differences. Uh, so it looks like taking the supplement doesn't help with your training adaptations. But when the supp- uh, the studies that use do, like RPE instead of just like the, du- the dry number, right? Like well, yeah. One, one study actually used RPE, or you just do a thirty second maximal sprint, or it's a four oh, right. min- or a four minute effort. You know, whatever the the scheme is, but letting them to to not clamp it, but rather let it be what it what it's going to be, and then you can measure did people increase training intensity or not. And indeed, in one study with beta alanine in trained cyclists, they did increase their training intensity more than the people just doing the interval workouts. So. Um, that I think is is a critical thing to think about. Um, caffeine again, people seem to still think that if you use caffeine regularly, it won't have the same effect. That's typically not the case, right? So, oh, really? Yeah. So you can you can use that, and I actually think um, I know a lot a- of people, like coaches, that say I actually had a coach a few years ago that told me because I'm a big coffee drinker just in general. Like I just enjoy coffee, and he was like, "Oh man, you got to stop." drinking coffee just have like a shot of espresso before your race and i'm like i'm not giving up my coffee yeah there's there's you don't know what you're what you're what you're doing yeah that's old school yeah Yeah. that's (laughs) that's old school advice and i and i'll tell you the the uh one of the 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 places that we see this the most in research because i talked to lauren spreed about this who's Mm. i mean he's done tons and tons of caffeine research studies um and he said that that they no longer have anybody abstain from caffeine because one of the issues in a lot of the research studies that they were seeing is that the effects of having a a chronic caffeine user come off of caffeine and then Mm. giving them the caffeine impacted the study more than just (laughs) having them you, you know, stay on it. And, and basically you're still seeing an improvement. So, yeah. so that washout effect didn't, didn't, uh, you know, didn't hurt their performance if they took caffeine in the study, but it sure as hell messed them up right. uh, beforehand. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And, and beyond that. So, so again, yeah, you, so you're, there's not a habituation effect. You're going to see increased training intensity because you're, it's, it's via, in this case, perception of effort with caffeine. And then also there's some signaling. So I mentioned some of the kind of the a molecular level, like you get improved calcium sensitivity with caffeine, there might be also increased something called AMPK signaling. So all these things that lead to greater uh, mitochondrial adaptations, uh, there's good reason to think that caffeine will only improve that. But there's no long-term, to my knowledge, studies uh, with caffeine and, and, and training. Um, I guess um, it, just a quick side question, if you don't mind. 
So like if people with caffeine, if people are, and if you're working out before work or in the morning, it's obviously a complete non-issue, but if people are working out uh, after work and then, you know, caffeine can also affect your sleep, is that something that's been studied at all or something? Um, I, mean, I, w- I wouldn't recommend, yeah, if, if it's an evening workout, I would not recommend caffeine. So that's just, uh, you're not going to be able to take advantage of that because even right. people that say they can have coffee and fall asleep. Yeah, I, I believe that, but that doesn't mean it's not having effects in your brain. So um, I definitely would recommend okay. against that. Sorry, then, go ahead. Yeah, that's okay. And then the other uh, creatine we can touch on, but the, the antioxidants I think are really interesting. Um, you know, I think people are getting a little bit hipper in, in somewhat areas maybe that um, we don't necessarily want to take these high doses of antioxidants. But basically, you know, Vitamin C, vitamin E are very commonly taken. People think, okay, I have more oxidative stress from exercise, so let me take extra antioxidants. Um, you know, on, on one level, that seems to make sense, but until you realize that exercise is itself an antioxidant and it causes an upregulation of your internal antioxidants. Yeah. And, fur- and furthermore, uh, the signaling that happens inside your muscle to tell your body to adapt is basically like, Free, there's the oxidants are, are what's doing a lot of the signaling. So when you take antioxidants, it's effectively blunting that signaling. Yeah. What's even more interesting though is, so the research is fairly, actually it's not clear, but there's a lot of evidence showing blunted uh, adaptations, but actually there's, there's none again to my knowledge, but no research showing blunted performance. So this actually opens up a really interesting question. There's a, a, quite a lot of studies with antioxidants, uh, a fair amount using antioxidants in training, and it's pretty clear that you can find blunted markers of adaptation. So things that usually, like I mentioned before, that symphony, the things that happen inside the cell that lead to adaptations. But, and this again might just be a time thing, um, there's no performance decrements from anti- antioxidants, right? So that says, okay, either they're not having an effect that we think the negative effect we think of maybe because there's other mechanisms for our body to adapt. So, um, you know, there's other ways that our mitochondria increase in size, not just through that oxidant signaling. Um, it's, it's interesting. There's, there's not firm answers there, but I do think it's, it's worth not taking them. And anyone that I, I see taking them, I, I always advise against that. Maybe unless you're traveling or getting sick and you will feel like, okay, I want to take some extra vitamin C. I don't really care one way or the other about that. But as a regular basis, taking high levels of antioxidants are, I would strongly, strongly suggest against, um, because again, you're, you're only kind of, uh, inhibiting some of those adaptations and whether or not it affects performance. Um, it's hard to say. Yeah, and I I I I'd, I'd actually add in there uh you know, I think it's you're you're going to see the same effect with inflammation. And this mm-hmm. is again what you know, you know a lot of people will take like Advil or you know some some other pain reliever uh to to get through a workout. And we do know that if you take pain relievers before a workout, you can you can actually perform a little bit better. They will at least reduce the sensation of fatigue. But you can't take them all the time because, again, they blunt those adaptive responses. Uh, but the whole in- inflammation thing gets, gets pretty complex. But the thing that people have to remember is that, again, endurance a- exercise in particular is anti-inflammatory uh, when, when we look on balance. And, and so we, we always want to be careful about, 
you, you know, just trying to eke out maybe a little bit of short-term performance. You know, it's one thing if it's like mm-hmm. one single race, but again, those repeated efforts, the, the body's pretty good. And, and, you know, back to your point about, uh, you, you know, just taking a supplement to reduce uh, oxidation, we would not be here. Like, like humans would not be here. We yeah. would not have evolved uh, if we did not have a good system to get rid of oxidation or, or that stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, we're just, we're, we're, uh, I, I, I say overbuilt for it. Okay. So yeah. it's like, we don't, we don't really see that much, um, need for those, you know, those chemicals. And, and it does get complicated because then people say, yeah, but you know, they say to eat all these foods that are supposed to be good for you and they're high in antioxidants. And you got to remind them that that's whole food and whole mm-hmm. food is very complex you know, so, so we don't yeah, want to eat though, eating like, whole food. Yeah. Yeah. There's no chance of eating a thousand milligrams of vitamin C, which is a, a, a dose super commonly taken yes. by people. Yes. That's a great point. Yeah. I was, so I was curious, some of the other, like the nat, like we're talking about nats or food, nat, foods and things like that. You see a lot of it and you mentioned beet juice before. Um, some of the, some of the things obviously you see advertised a lot. I'm just curious, like uh, the different, like pomegranate juice or or coconut water. Or I remember listening to an um, interview a few years ago with I can't remember some marathoner, and he was saying that he eats a lot of blueberries uh, that helps him uh, with recovery and things like that. I was wondering what your opinion is on any of those. Yeah, those, I mean, foods. There's no evidence that suggests food would be too much of an antioxidant or, or any problem. So again, if if you, uh, I, I can't remember how much vitamin C off the top of my head is in a cup of blueberries, for example, but there's, is nowhere near, let's say, like I said, that, that, that uh, one gram that you might find in a typical supplement. So right. um, they're, they're, they're really different levels of things there and food. It, you couldn't eat too much food antioxidants, I don't think. But I mean, no, I guess, I mean, more as far as like uh, recovery, like the, those, mm. uh, those things, any of those things really help you recover. Like a lot of people claim, oh, you know, after a hard race, I'll, I'll knock down a Mm. cup of blueberries or a can of uh coconut water and really i really feel the difference (laughs) yeah i mean i don't know uh getting adequate protein is probably the key there and and potentially you know tart cherry juice actually can seems to help uh speed up recovery in that case um so there's probably some like chris said weighing the short-term performance versus the long-term adaptation so something like tart cherry juice um the leading up to a race um could probably be beneficial um so yeah, I think that there's a place for some of that stuff. Well, well, you mentioned uh, uh, protein. What what does the research say about about protein? How much protein? When when protein? Uh, what is I guess the consensus right there now with endurance sports specifically in protein? That's a good question, um, I, and I, I think there's. Uh, the, you know, in some places, so we think of it in terms of grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, right? And so, um, you know, 1.6 to 1.7 seems to be like a, the, the a kind of a balance point. Um, but then there's other places that would suggest even going upwards of like two to even three grams per kilogram for someone that's uh, training a lot, uh, two and a half to three. So, if, if and this is like during intensified training. So if you, if you're a very serious triathlete or cyclist or runner that's doing some very intensified training, um, and this might be only in a small subset of people, 
two and a half to three grams per kilogram might benefit both psychological and, and muscular recovery. Um, but generally, yeah, yeah there, there's good reason to think that at least maybe 1.7 to 1.8 grams per kilogram a day um, is re- really needed for endurance athletes training at a, a reasonable volume. Um, you, you know, you need this for several reasons. It's, it's you know, we think of it in terms of muscle protein synthesis and, and muscle hypertrophy. So, you know, building muscles usually in the context of resistance training, but um, mitochondrial protein synthesis, you know, and there's amino acid oxidation during exercise. I mean, there's, there's needs for protein that it goes beyond just building um, the muscle as we think, kind of think of it. Um, so, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's maybe a little bit underappreciated. I, I, just when I kind of think everyone knows they need to eat enough protein, I'll see endurance athletes in particular that just don't eat anywhere near enough. So I guess, um, you know, some, some, not everyone has gotten that picture and the amount, I don't, I don't think it needs to be a crazy amount, but it, it needs to be substantial. Um, 20, 25 grams in most cases is a good minimum serving for someone. Um, a lot of times people just don't get that, um, maybe after a workout or, um, yeah, I, I, I guess, um, it's, it's, it can be pretty simple, but you know, a few, three or four servings of at least, let's say, uh, uh, palm and a half or a hand-sized protein equivalent, um, you know, that, that should cover you. But like I said, many people don't, don't actually get that. What do you generally find, uh, with your, with, 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 with the folks that you coach, Hanok, uh, is this something that comes up a lot from your end? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, well, you know, people, especially with cyclists are always worried about, they're always, uh, you know, it, obsessed with weight. So I think there's, there's, I, I think there's a lot of under, uh, under eating as far as, uh, both in terms of, uh, either pre-workouts and like, Oh, my interval session didn't go, didn't go, didn't go good today. And I was like, what'd you have for lunch? They're like, Oh, whatever. You know, something very tiny. I'm like, well, that's why you're, that's why, or, or, um, or, or post-workout, you know, they won't, they won't eat enough. And I always stress, especially after races, they don't eat, or maybe they eat enough, but not soon enough. You know, they, you know, you're hanging out after the race and talking, and then you don't get to eat anything until uh, an hour or two later. And then the next day, their training is, is pretty goes pretty lousy. And 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 you know, putting the 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 two pieces of the puzzle together a lot of times, you know, fail. That you know, people don't kind of realize that or realize that think about it enough. Um, so it's kind of just hammering that message home a lot, even though it seems kind of uh, simple and intuitive. It's kind of it's necessary keep on hammering that message i think yeah i agree and actually you know it just made me think of um like a as a guy i started working with and he's a, a very good age grouper um you know kind of like a, a a low four hour 70.3 um and a typical day this is uh, a weekday for a workout at around 5 30 or 6 you might have some oatmeal with some seeds and nuts and then have a workout after that and then um have coffee after a workout and maybe banana bread or a croissant and then eat a snack on some nuts until lunch. And then at lunch, just have like a salad with protein around 12 or 1230. So his first reasonable amount of protein is at around noon. Is that where, noon, right? What's that? Yeah. Is it noon? No, and so, at noon? Yeah. Yeah. And so he's already had a hard workout. Uh, I mean, he's just missed two really big opportunities and important opportunities to eat protein. Um, 
And so, yeah, it's no wonder he was like starving. And actually, amazingly, we figured out, so he was snacking on nuts because not, not only people are more afraid of carbohydrates than they are of, of protein, I find. Um, but, you know, nuts seem like a healthy snack and, you know, they, they certainly can be. But when we added up, I said, you know, roughly how much do you think? And, and, you know, we kind of figured it out and we calculated. He's probably eating about 1,500 to 1,800 calories per day in nuts. Are you oh, my God. Whoa, are you serious? That yeah. is a lot. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a lot. Although it's actually not that much. It's only like a cup and a half or something like it's, you know, of, of uh, you know, macadamia nuts or whatever. Like it, it, it adds up fairly quickly. So, um yeah, I think it's super common that when people are under eating, then they, they kind of make up with for it in nuts. I've actually had another very high level athlete that did the same thing. She was eating about 800 calories of nuts a day, just trying to avoid carbohydrates. And I said, well, you can have like five cups of rice if you wanted and still be in a deficit compared to what you were doing. So, uh, you know, make <laughs> right, and, right. and then feel a whole lot better. So when people kind of start to see that it's, it's a good thing. That's again, going back to what I said initially, I, I enjoy helping people feel better and do these things in a more efficient way. And, um, that's, you know, one of the, one of the things that comes up a lot. I think part of the problem is, is especially with the maybe less on triathlete, triathlon, triathletes and runners, but with cycling, you know, you're reading the cycling press a lot and, you know, some will say, Oh, you know, they, they had a really good season. They'll be like, Oh yeah, I lost like you know X amount of weight over the winter, and I had a fantastic season. I'm talking about like professional, like world tour level riders. Mm-hmm. So some uh, amateur cyclist reads that, and that's, he thinks, oh, I got to go go out and lose ten pounds. But they don't see the other side of the equation. Well, this guy has a massage every day, and he has a professional mm-hmm. chef that you know cooks some healthy healthy meals, and he has recovery. He has all that thing that goes along with it. It's not just oh he lost ten pounds and he, you know he he all of a sudden uh, you know got on the podium at the Tour de France or something like that. But that message gets hammered so much and you see mm-hmm. so much about, oh, losing weight equals performance gains, but they don't talk about the everything else that goes into that. Um, so I thought that, I think that's a common, not necessarily a misperception, but just a, just a message that gets put out there, but not the other side of the coin doesn't go along with that message. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I actually agree because I don't uh, – I don't know which story it was. It was fairly recent. It was another, you know, world tour cyclist, and and, and that came up is is like you know, uh, had a great season, lost ten pounds, or or hmm. you know something like that. And and, right, and exactly. I'm like, that's yeah, that might have played a role, but this whole idea that his entire season came down to because he lost weight, and we don't we don't know how much of that is actually fact based. Um, you you know, cyclists are notorious for putting out false numbers. Right. Exactly. They've admitted to it. You know, I mean, it's, it's part of the psychological game that, that they play. Um, and I, and I often wonder, I just, I, I try to take a lot of that with a grain of salt because it just, uh, you know, it, it comes down to the fact that, yeah, did they actually lose that much weight and, also, if you're riding for one of these teams, especially like Team Sky, I, I, I mean, hell, I could, I could get my weight down uh, another ten pounds back down to where I used to race at in my twenties if I was on Team Sky. I mean, it, it, you know, and hell, if I were making a few million euro a year, I'd, I, I'd hire a chef to cook for me. <laughs> I mean, you'd be stupid not to. Um, and I think people forget that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's always tricky, and it's. 
it's in every sport though. I mean, in bodybuilding magazines, you, you see crazy advice too. And, and, and people follow it and it's just very, very tricky. You always have to be careful with that. I mean, it's not even so much in this case, bad advice. It's more just like, you know, they're reading the interviews and they, and they say, Oh, you know, I wanted, I lost, I lost 10 pounds. I won the tour de France. It's not really that like even the, the magazine, like, or whatever websites are saying are recommending that for training, but the message kind of just, subconsciously comes across a little bit too much yeah yeah and and you you know to take it just just one step further on this point if you look at bradley wiggins okay because that's the most kind of recent person that 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 people like to draw conclusions from he he didn't he didn't just lose weight overnight It, it was over a long period of time and i'm sure jeff would 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 be able to attest to this it takes a lot of careful planning to lose that amount of body weight, not body fat, you know, body weight over a period of time. That doesn't happen in a period of months. Um, when it does, it's usually pretty detrimental. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I had a client is just a local cyclist. He said, yeah, I can, um, I can lose like four or five pounds really easily. Like in a week, like it's like, really? Well, yeah. If you just stop eating carbs, it's just water weight though. It's not real weight. You know, people have that misconception as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, I guess one last kind of big question here is that it is, well, it, it'll be December, uh, tomorrow. And I, what should people be doing at this time of year to, to set themselves up for success and, and, and to really couch that a little bit more specifically from a nutrition plan standpoint, like what, what do you think, uh, or what would you advise somebody to do? It's like, okay, it's December. You're, you're thinking about all this training stuff, but have you thought about this to prepare for the season ahead? Yeah, I, I think now is a good time to actually experiment a little bit, play with the things we've talked about earlier in this discussion. So try a sleep low. So try a, you know, whether it's an interval workout at one night or a spin class or whatever, and then just have protein afterwards and then try to do a 20 minute jog the next morning and see what happens. Right. And then maybe if you have a, a easy coffee ride or a zone two ride and you don't, and you normally eat something beforehand, maybe try to not do that. Or, you know, just to start playing with this stuff in a little bit here and there and see how your body responds. Like Chris, you said, okay, I know if I do a really hard workout and sleep with no carbs, I sleep terribly and feel terrible the next day. But if I have, you know, two slices of bread, then maybe that's the sweet spot to, I can function, I can sleep, but then I can still have effectively a a low gas tank. So I think this is a great time where you're not worried about getting right into race shape, although early season races are are coming up soon. Um, But you have maybe, and if you have a coach, you're not, you know, maybe you need to follow a training schedule as rigidly so that you can, you know, have a, you know, a less important workout because you might bonk or you might, you know, not feel good or whatever. So I think this is a great time to just play with some of this stuff. And then once you know how your body responds, let's say the sleep low works really well for you where you, you, you know, it's not, no one's going to enjoy it, but you know, it's like tolerable and you, and you know that if you do it, or you can, you think that if you do it fairly regularly, even if that's once a week, um, you might get some positive results. So in that case, you know, okay, coming into my 12 or 24 week training program for Ironman, um, I'm going to arrange uh, my spin class on Monday night and then my easy jog on Tuesday morning. So I can set this sleep low scenario up, you know, you can, or you tell your coach, okay, give me a back to back 
you know, evening hard workout, AM, easy workout, whatever, so that I can then do this and, and, and then, um, you know, start to have a sense of how you can use some of this stuff, knowing it's not the be all end all, but it might just give you a little bit more out of a given training session. Um, and really what all training is, is the accumulated response to these single little, uh, you know, stress sessions that we, we impose on ourselves. So I, uh, that, that's, uh, I think a good place to think about that right now. Yeah, and and I want to add one thing to that because along the lines of the nutrition, and this goes back to your original discussion about the research that you're doing, this is a great time of year to, if you want to add some intensity into your training, to do some simulations where you're practicing uh, swim the bike or bike to run, and you can practice the nutrition there. And I've, I've done this because this is one of the things that I really wanted to dial in for Xterra uh, and, and, and try to just get an idea of how I'm going you know, to approach fueling. And so I would set up the bike workout, and I, I did probably five or six of these in a winter period of time back maybe three, four years ago. And, and you're just going to come right off the bike, and you're going to go into the run. But you've done the race-type nutrition. And you mm-hmm. can play around these things and see what, what, what's going to work. Do I want to try to go really high carb, you know, and see what happens? Do, do, do I get anything from that? Um, and this is a good time. But, but, but like you say, I mean, this is, this is really where you dial it in because the, the, the closer you get to the season, the more hectic things become, the more where I, I say the less you want to change things. You want to get yeah. into a comfort zone and – and you don't want to test things out. I mean, that's just the fact of it. Yeah, exactly. But cool, cool. That that was, uh, you know, I think that that's really helpful for, for, for folks getting getting going. Awesome. Um, so you said one more, one more uh, uh, question, kind of, you know, changing gears a little bit, but has there, is there any new research or... Um, been done at all on uh, cramping. I know we've all heard the, the usual like um, dehydration and things like that, but uh, which which probably I don't know is if it's really true or not. Um, I think it's not. But uh, I was curious if you had any if you could shed any light on that at all. Is anything? Yeah, I mean I haven't looked too much into that. Other than I, I think an underappreciated aspect of cramping is is really like a depleted gas tank. So if you really just effectively you know if your muscles don't have any glycogen in them if you effectively bonk, but, but, um, it just seems like that, that's, um, you know, that, that's more likely when people that there's different, well, let me say off the top, there's definitely different reasons people cramp. And that's why it's so tricky to, to really pin down and figure out because it could be dehydration maybe, or it's electrolyte imbalance or, um, you know, other reasons. Um, but I, I think from my perspective, getting, people to fuel enough like so if they're doing a long enough high intensity effort i.e like a race type of thing making sure that there's enough gas in the tank and that i have definitely seen people who struggle with cramping not have those issues by having enough gas in the tank now at the same time i had an athlete just in in cosmel uh who ended up very well doing very well results wise uh winning her division but had terrible cramping and i know that wasn't from an under fueling aspect i think that was more to do with the humidity and essentially maybe an electrolyte thing. Um, so, so it was the cramping do- during the actual race or yeah, or yeah. Okay. running. Yeah. During the run. Okay. Okay. Cause I've had, I've had scenarios in, you know, this is just me personally, but where I'll actually, uh, cramp up like a few hours after 
a really, really, usually it's, it's, um, not less about intensity, more about, uh, like a high volume type of ride. Mm. Um, but it'll be like four or five hours after. So it's definitely after, and I definitely, uh, so that might be more your, your, your recovery food and that making sure you're getting enough carbs and protein and, and, you know, sodium and all that stuff you're supposed to be getting back right. in. Um, I, I would say that's more to do with that. And then also another, one of the most challenging things with people that cramp during races, I have a number of people or uh, several people I've worked with that cramp in races or, or get GI distress in races, but not during training. Okay. So that tells really? me e- either that's a cycle. There is definitely a psychological component, right? So there's a, just nerves or excitement that can, can relate to cramping or GI issues. But then there's also then maybe it's your training. You know, maybe you're going harder in a race than you ever did during long training workouts. Or, you know, yeah. there's something there's, right, there's, right. There's that there. And that's really hard from my point of view. Like I feel partly responsible. But it's like if we can't recreate a cramp in training, then you're doing something different. Right. You know, <laughs> so it's tough. And, and I'm sure there's people listening that, that maybe uh, that re- resonates with. But um, yeah. And in that case, it's like I said, psychological or, or you're just racing harder than you train. Yeah. And, and one unfortunate thing about cramping is that if, if you have cramped, um, you are going to cramp again. Mm. And that's really what, really what it comes down to. You're, you're a cramper at that point. Um, yeah. and, and unfortunately it's, it's, it's not much you can do about it except for just try to prepare accordingly. And I, I, I came up with a kind of a, a cramp, uh, cramp inducing train, tra- uh, training protocol a few years ago. I don't know. It works for me. Uh, if you go on, you train really, really hard and then you add in a lot of really high intensity sprints at the end, mm. you, you could probably get yourself to cramp or at least come close to it. Mm-hmm. But you really need to think about the level of fatigue and stress that you're going to undergo in that race. <laughs> and it's very, it, it's very rare, I, I think, for the average person to go out and train that hard. Uh, it's just uh, you've really got to push yeah. yourself to those limits. And I, I understand if you're doing an Ironman and you're an age grouper, you're not gonna. I, I'm not gonna say, hey, go out and do an Ironman before your Ironman. That's that would just be silly. But it's it's something that you really have to think about and 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 maybe even think about strategies. I've I've gone in the races where I suspect I'm gonna cramp, and I and I build that into my strategy because let's say you're doing a triathlon and you're coming out of the run. Hey, you know what? Take take 20, 30 seconds to just stretch. Like if you know your calves cramp, uh, you, mm-hmm. you cramp, cramp up or your hamstrings, take 20, 30 seconds to stretch. You might say, well, you know, that's 20 or 30 seconds. Yeah, but if you cramp, you're screwed. You're sl- <laughs> you exactly. know, you're going to have to stop and you're going to mm-hmm. have to stretch and it's probably going to be a whole lot longer. And yeah. at that point, you're going to run slower. Yeah, so, exactly. You right. Know, it's just... It's just bite the bullet and accept that you've got to build that into your strategy. All right. Well, cool, Jeff. Uh, it was great catching up with you again. I know that, again, we've, we, we've conversed a lot over email, and uh, it's been a lot of fun being able to kind of be part of uh, you know, some writing and, and, you know, and looking at this research. But as always in this field, everything is changing, and I find it's more helpful to just know a lot of people who are – aware of specific areas of research than it is for me to try to be an expert in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's great to talk with somebody like you because I, I, I really do try to keep up with Smurfs Nutrition, but I, like, I can't. I, it's just too hard. 
So I really appreciate cool. you taking the time to talk with yeah. us today. It's my pleasure. I always enjoy our chats. Right, yeah, cool. thanks for coming out. It was great talking to you. And that's it, folks, for the 2018 season of the One More Mile podcast. Once again, I want to thank Jeff Rothschild, as well as all of the guests that joined us this season uh, to come out and talk with us. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. But I also want to remind you that you can head on over to www.go1mm.com. Again, that's go1mm.com. You can hit the donate button and contribute to making this podcast great. We are really trying to work hard to make improvements. We're looking at improving content, but also improving sound quality. And I have already invested a good bit of my own money and my time over the years, but I've invested some more money, going to get some better equipment, and we're really looking to improve the podcast. But we need your support. So head on over to go1mm.com. There you can hit the donate button, donate five, ten, hundred dollars whatever you think is appropriate for you. But if you enjoy the podcast, we really need those donations. Also, head on over to iTunes. Write us a review. The reviews matter. I know that everybody hates kind of going going out and, and writing reviews, but we need those reviews. So if you're listening to this podcast and you have never written a review, you've never commented, you've never emailed us, now is your time to do it. Make your voice count. Uh, write the review and then email us at go one more mile at gmail.com i'd love to hear from you we love ideas uh and if you have questions or anything else just drop us a line uh but again that is it for 2018 hope you enjoyed the 12 tips of christmas and we will be seeing you in the new year so remember folks always go one more mile later later